Hello fellow adventurers and welcome to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I'm an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a cooperative fantasy card game. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together, we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. Today, we have a great guest on the show. He is the designer um, and, as far as I know, also the publisher of the very successful game uh, Imperium The Contention. Uh, the game has an awesome um, 8.1 rating on Board Game Geek, and um, it is a 4x card game about deploying fleets, moving ships into the right position, and then crushing your opponent in a, in a space combat. And in addition, uh, he is also currently working on a title that is yeah, desired by many, many people um, because he's working on the Slay the Spire board game implementation, um, which I'm also very curious to learn more about um, in today's session. So please welcome with me uh, Gary Toretsky. Welcome to the show, Gary. Hi, Marvin. Thanks for having me. So um, I would like to talk to you about so many things today. I have a lot of a lot of very interesting questions. I hope um, um, I want to dig a little bit deeper into your game design approach, um, maybe your favorite game mechanics of uh, Imperium and Slay the Spire, um, and maybe also how you you got such a such an exciting license to work on, um, and also what what it means to have, to to work with such a license for the design process, but. Before we dive into all of those questions, um, would you please introduce yourself and yeah, tell the listeners a little bit about um, how you got into the hobby in the first place? Sure. Um, well, I am. I started out as a film composer, which is not a natural transition, but um, I was uh, always kind of playing games and you know, th that, that was basically my main hobby playing games. And I was always curious about, about how they work. And I always felt like I could do something better. That that's, that, that was my main motivation when I was younger, both in music and in whatever I did is I would see things and I would think, you know, I, I, I can do, I can do better than this. Um, uh, and that led to, One day I was playing um, Masters over Ryan, uh, which is a, a 4X video game. A very And good one, by the way. I love it. A very good one. Yeah, <laughs> I was super addicted to it. This is like 20 years ago. And I was playing a lot of uh, Magic the Gathering at the same time. And whenever I would play Magic with multiple people, I would be like, this is horrible Uh, I, I'm waiting for players for a long time. No one knows who to attack. And like, they're, you know, like depending on the rules we set up, it's a complete mess. And it usually was a complete mess. So it, it, it was like, it was, it was still fun, but it, uh, it just felt like it could be so much better. And so the idea, the spark hit me, there's got to be a way to combine these two things to make a 4X uh, card game where you can customize you know, your decks and, and do something like this. And this was before, you know, I played any, uh, any heavy board games. So it was pretty early and the early versions of the game were terrible. I had, <laughs> I had no idea what it was doing. And, um, 
I, I made a full, fully functional prototype, functional in quotes, because, you know, the game was in some ways unplayable. And um, it sat in a corner for like 10 years while I worked on my music career. And one day when I was um, done with um, with a certain studio, uh, I left I left Hans Zimmer studio. I moved to L.A. to work there. And when I left that studio, I was kind of a little burnt out and kind of kind of sick of of writing music for a little while. So I um I, cu- I couldn't look at a note for like a month. I just yeah. So I, I picked up the game that was collecting dust in the corner and I played it and I'm like, this is bad, but everything suddenly became clear with where it needs to go. And I just, just had a moment of clarity and what to do with it. Um, although it seemed clear at the time, um, I had no idea how much work it would take to get from where it was to where I wanted it to be. And that's kind of where my game designer process really began. That early prototype was more of an experiment. That's when I really decided that I was going to finish this thing. Okay, that sounds very interesting, and I can absolutely relate to um, to how your journey began by playing games and thinking about how to improve them, and um, yeah, combining different different games and genres together. Um, that's also something that that always uh, yeah uh, ignites my spark when I think about what kind of game I could work on. So um, maybe it makes sense to. Um, to explain the listeners a little bit of um, how Imperium um, actually works. So um, how would you summarize the game um, and how it is played in a, in a few sentences or so? Sure. It's, um, well, it's uh, a 4X card game and it's sort of like, uh, it's kind of like Magic the Gathering in Space, just like the original inspiration. I think it kind of hits that. And... Um, I've heard people say it's like MTG meets, you know, um, Twilight Imperium. I've heard someone describe it as 4X Summoner Wars. And uh, it has some, um, it has deck construction, but it comes with some great pre-constructed decks. So you don't even need to start out with that. Um, and the game sort of flows with with simultaneous turns. It, it kind of flows um, where you get one resource type. And you expand out your colonies, pretty much one per turn. And you're just like people are creeping out on this map and they're getting the resources and playing ships and agents and technologies. But a lot of it focuses on ships, which is kind of true to the TCG nature of the thing. A lot of it is basically like creatures fighting in space, you know, like like something from the, the fantasy TCGs. You could think of it kind of like that. And um The ships have a speed, they move, they can attack locations, they can attack each other, they can blow up home worlds as an imperial capital, they help you settle the capital. And um, and by destroying worlds, you gain favor. And if you control enough worlds, uh, you can win that way too, either win by having eight or more favor or controlling eight or more worlds. Okay. Um, how do you actually manage or organize simultaneous gameplay in a game that also involves movement like Summoner Wars, for example, or like uh, uh, Imperium? So movement is a place in a turn where we actually don't 
do it exactly simultaneously. Okay. Um, so th the, the phases of the turn are broken down into simultaneous parts and, um, and non-simultaneous parts. It's, a uh, it's kind of a game design process that, um, I'd like to call, uh, I can't think of the term that I came up with for it, but it's basically you're trying to maximize simultaneous actions. Um, so players can get resources and draw cards at the same time. They do that. Um, players can't move ships at the same time, so they don't do that. Players can play cards at the same time by putting them face down and flipping them, so we do that. So basically anywhere in the turn structure where I could have made things simultaneous, I did. And I think the game's has a great flow um, because of that. Once you get used to that, the first couple of rounds, because most games don't work like this, you know, players are getting into the groove of it, but since not much is happening in the game yet, by the time the game is picking up, people are, are used to it. It was pretty easy to teach new players. So um, what were the main reasons to make these, uh, these actions simultaneous? I think a lot of my, my game design direction comes from the fact that I'm an impatient person and I'm very picky and I don't like to play a lot of games. And when I'm playing a game and I'm bored, I am very aware of what is going on at that moment that like that not everyone has to be waiting for. Um, and I believe a lot of my game design direction stems from me being uh impatient and wanting games to be more action-packed and um so what is what is then the game length of the game typically um it's if if everyone knows what they're doing it's 20 minutes per player and for mm -hmm. your first time it'll probably be 30 minutes okay cool so um let's let me ask this question. So you mentioned that the, in the beginning, your first prototype or so, it was a mess. Uh, can you remember maybe maybe one aspect of the game that really didn't work in your first implementation and um, what, you, what, what you did about it? How, to, how did you change it? Though it maybe uh, worked out in the end of the, uh, when in your last version? Sure, yeah. Um, I, I'd say the critical failure of the first prototype was that the locations were thought of like like you know um bases like they attacked back and they had and they were tough and it just made um made it very hard to destroy locations and the game went to a a crawl and no one could make any progress and kill each other's locations like the locations which you settled basically for free were rivaling ships that you would pay a lot of resources for so it was it was something that uh um had to be dialed back and so the home worlds were still tough but all the colonies that you settled those were weak and ships that uh, most most locations uh, colonies have a defense of two or three and you can play a ship on turn one that has two attacks so right out of the gate you can play a cheap ship and start trying to go after the weaker colonies okay and um Maybe one question with regards to multiplayer, because you mentioned that the game is um, that you that you dislike the experience from playing Magic uh, in a multiplayer mode, which I also um, dislike most of them uh, quite a bit, the different versions. Um, so, how does multiplayer work in um, in your game? Um, 
So the the critical thing with multiplayer is is a, along with all those simultaneous um, things like playing cards at the same time and uh, and getting resources and drawing cards at the same time and ships all dealing damage at the end of the turn at the same time. Um, the simultaneous the things that can't happen simultaneous are determined by the void scepter, which is basically a first player marker. And so I will move ships. If I have the Void Scepter, I move ships first. And then if you're to my left, you move them next, et cetera. And we go around the table until everyone's moved their ships. And sorry. Uh, yeah, you move ships, then you settle. And and that is during the command phase. Um, so that is the part of the turn where the order makes a big difference. Because if you move... If you move ships after me, you get to react to me. But the Void Scepter passes every turn. So eventually it'll get to you and you're going to move your ships first and I'll get to react to you. So um, there's this dynamic in the game where um, you're waiting for your opportunity to act last or at least after the people you want to attack. And uh, it, it gives you your your edge and it makes it difficult for people to turtle in the game and difficult for people to defend everything. And it, and it, it turns the game into a, a more strategic and uh, aggressive um, strategy game, which, which I like a lot. It's uh, it favors aggression. Okay. And is there anything in the game that um, I don't know, determines who you, um, Aggress against because that's sometimes a problem in these magic um, versions that you, I mean, I mean, a few people could could gang up against against the strongest player at the table at the moment because um, he has the best board state or so or, or the most life points left or so and it's quite obvious that he is uh, he or she is the leader in that situation. Um, so um, I, I just recently had a um, had a podcast interview with Richard Garfield uh, the designer of magic and um, he said something like um, it is important that um, play oh, that's one one option at least that players don't really have the agency um, who to attack like it is in in one of his games King of Tokyo for example um, where you always attack the player who is currently the king on on the hill for example though it's very clear that that you that this is the player that will be attacked. So um, you have less politics or so during the game. Do you have some kind of components like that in your game as well that to, to reduce the the option of uh, of players to, to gang up against a, a certain player? Well, um, it is a 4X game and there is space and ships have limited movement. So a lot of your... If, if you're playing with a lot of people, it goes up to six... Your corner of the galaxy is going to have its own problems. Sure. Um, so there's that. And uh, there is enough time for the player who is currently ahead to be taken down and someone else to to rise up. And yes, that, that does happen. If, you, if you're in a six-player game and you gun for the Imperial Capital as soon as you can, and that gives you two favor per turn, by the way, and it's in the middle of the map, you're probably asking for trouble. <laughs> it is possible to win in this situation, but the timing of when to take the Imperial Capital is um, is pretty important. 
one thing I think Imperium does really well is that when you lose, it's pretty easy to look back and see uh, why you lost, what high-level strategic decisions you did uh, you did poorly. I timed taking the Imperial Capital wrong, or I hit this player too hard, and they were super weak, and I needed them to actually check the player next to them who ended up winning. If I didn't hit this player so hard, they would have been strong enough to keep that other player in check, and then... And then I would have actually had a better chance of winning because they would have fought each other more. You know, it's like these um, it's uh, there's a lot of action happening and a lot of um, a lot of a lot of ways a game can go where like it's like a butterfly effect that like things happen kind of fast. And some some of these Forex games, things kind of crawl and the ships move slowly and the, the action. It just turns into war fronts and not a lot's happening. And Imperium, you can move past someone ships like you know the idea in imperium is space is big you can fly past a colony and attack one further back you can it 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 just feels like a lot can happen and i i do like the possibilities and the feeling that i i almost always feel like i had a way to win yeah that that makes a lot of sense uh because i think um location is something that you typically do not have in in a, in, a, in a magic multiplayer game for example so um, it's a little bit, okay you have some kind of if you if you play left attack or so or right attack you know that uh, you you fight the your direct neighbor or so um, but if you have some kind of um, of map in a 4x game or so that um, that is completely different and um, with the capital in the middle um, of the map that's also some kind of king on the hill i would say you it's a very prominent and um uh, very strong location, so um, yeah, you probably ask for for problems as you mentioned. So you do, um, but th- there there are some there are some benefits to having the capital. It has um, it has a shipyard, when and there are very few locations on the map where you can actually play ships without other things that allow you to do that. So whoever takes the capital is able to drop their ships there, which is uh, it makes it one just as easy to defend as your home world. So there is that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of strategic decisions to, to, be, to be made with, uh, with regards to, um, yeah, who to, who to attack, um, how to move your ships, um, and what kind of, uh, yeah, uh, planets and locations to colonnade. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky game. Um, I, I, I've played it. I've played probably over a thousand hours of it and I still feel like I'm learning. Like I, I make, I make mistakes all the time with, with, with how to, in, in games with lots of players, it's, it's very tricky, but that, that's, that's normal with all four X's, you know, yes. like you, you cool. often feel like you had, you had a path there. Some of them do it better than others, but I think Imperium does that pretty well. And, um, Maybe from <clears throat> game design perspective, is there one um, mechanic or so, one aspect or phase of the game that you are particularly proud of? Something that you really like about the game that that you have designed? Um, I think with Imperium, the the face off, I like I like the face off quite a bit. Uh, players, all players have a bluff card in their hand, and. Um, when you're in a face-off, everyone puts a card face down on a table and flips them at the same time. But you can bluff. You can 
playing nothing. And um, at first, you'll when you're playing the game, you'll be like, oh, this is just a way to saying I'm not I'm not playing anything. But you'll get into these situations where you start to realize how powerful it is to do nothing and wait and see what everyone plays. And then your group dynamic starts to have this psychological game going on where people are trying to wait as long as possible to play things. But if everyone bluffs, then um, then the face-off is over. But if just one person played a card, the face-off continues with another round. So you you get these chances to react, and sometimes you just want to drop a strong ship or something, but later in the game, it turns into um, the face-off becomes like a, a tense psychological battle between everyone. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. That sounds like uh, yeah, interesting choices doing all the phases of the game. Um, and um, I would like to transition a little bit into um, the, let's say, the publishing aspect of it. So at which point in time did you decide to, um, to self-publish this game? Oh, um, that was probably 2018. Um, so when I first decided that and, uh, I was, I was balancing publishing and film composing at the time. I just finished working on, uh, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. And, um, I decided to go all in on publishing. I'm just going to work on this until work on this game until it's done and ready to put on Kickstarter. And, um, It probably took me an extra, it took me an extra few months than I thought it would. And people were questioning my decisions. It's like, you're, you're a film composer. Why are you doing this? And, you know, um, but, um, but the people who needed to believed in me and I kept on working on it. And although it was not a financial success, it did lead to, um, it did lead to slay the spire and it did, um, it did prepare me to, to learn all the tools that I would need to, to publish in the future. And, um, yeah, maybe let's, let's talk about that. How, how did it lead to, um, to slay the spire? It, um, when the pandemic hit, uh, and Hollywood shut down, I again had another window where, well, I had no choice. I couldn't work on music and, and I was, obsessed with slay the spire at the time um i mean i still am uh for like a couple years at that point not only did i play the the video game a lot but i would watch some of the best streamers in the world i watched this um slay the spire streamer named jorbs and i would watch him when i was eating lunch eating dinner taking a break w whenever I, i i i was just he you know, showed me just how deep this game was and how deep the rabbit hole was. And I, I really got into it. And um, that led to me when when I couldn't work on music anymore, being like, um, you know, I wanted to work on a on a fantasy dungeon crawler next. And a lot of the inspiration for it came from Slay the Spire. Why don't I just contact them and be like, um, Look, this is uh, this is the type of game I'd like to make anyway. How about I just make a prototype and and send it to you? And if you don't like it, then 
the most time you waste is, you know, the one evening you decide to look at it. And, you know, I'll just make it with no input from you so you guys don't have to spend a lot of time giving me direction. I'll just take a swing at it. And if I miss, I miss, you know, we'll see what happens. And they were like, yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I just made the prototype for like, I don't know, like a, like a month or six weeks. And I, I sent it to them and I had no idea if I was completely wasting my time. I went, I went all in, you know, I made a box with their art. All the cards had their art and everything. So it was a, you know, it wasn't a bare bones prototype. It was fully functional, had all the graphical assets and basic graphic design. And, um, and they played it a couple times and they liked it. Um, it, uh, it has grown a lot since then, but I think they could see that the foundation of what it needed to be was there. That sounds like a yeah, very smart way to contact them. Yeah, you, you reduce the barrier of, um, of entry for them quite a bit. I mean, uh, their effort was, let's say, almost zero um, and they didn't have any risk before they had to make the decision. So, um, and if they would not have liked it, you could probably uh, use your prototype um, in, a, in, in another way of course, with other artwork and so, but uh, um, you would not have lost so much as well. Um, and I think it's a, it's a very interesting and smart way to contacting them. I sort of, um, I understand where they're coming from. Like a lot of these small studios where it's just two or three developers, they don't have, they don't have time to guide, you know, a, a publisher and um, sp spend spend tons of time with them. I, I, th there are some other indie games that people are having trouble getting. And it's because um, these people have way too much on their plate. Um, but uh, the game has grown a lot since then. And I have been getting input from them since then. They didn't have to go through an initial stage where we're finding out what the game is, luckily. But in terms of refining a game like Slay the Spire, it is a huge task. Um, we thought we were closer than we were when we announced that uh, that Contention Games would be working on it. But uh, Slay the Spire, the video game, is such a well-loved and refined product that it is, you know, you can't you can't give it anything less than than a hundred percent effort because th the game's a fine-tuned machine, and the board game has to match that. Absolutely, um, and yeah, that 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 must be a, a great a great challenge for you. Um, and with regards to the fine oiled machine that Slayer's Aspire is, I know that that they were kind of, I don't know if they were pioneers, but um, I once read an article that they um, used a lot of in-game statistics to fine tune their cards. So their um, their play testing was kind of um, and adjustment they made were always based on um, let's say the statistics that they got from their player base and um, I found that very inspiring from a um, 
as a as a game designer from that perspective because uh, when we play test our um, let's say paper prototypes or so we don't have the luxury that some kind of uh, excel spreadsheets uh, uh, automatically calculated in the in the back end and we see the win rates of certain cards and so on or combination of cards so um, did you also talk with them a little bit about those aspects and maybe got some influence or impact uh, help from them with regards to to balancing or prototyping um they have um uh they've been a, a great help and and some members of their team or or close friends of theirs that that uh helped give them advice on the on the on the video game are are helping me as well um I'm working with uh, with uh, Penny right now, who's a close friend of the Megacrit team, and and her playtesting. She she knows the game as well as I do, and um, and when when we tear this game apart, we we have you know thousands of hours and of of playtime and just time digging into this game to to reference to help us balance it. But um, in terms of data, it's uh, it's hard to rival that kind of of data. There's there's no way for us to get that kind of. <laughs> Unfortunately, that... not. I was yeah. hoping you have some kind of magic bullet here that you could share with us. <laughs> well, the, the I mean the we know the the video game so well, and we understand these cards so well, and the way it's being translated. A lot of these things translate. So, um, it, yeah, tell it's us a little bit how you translate the game into into a physical game. Sure. Um, so a lot of uh, a lot of the way you progress in Slay the Spire is the same. You have you have your same kind of floors. You have your your fights. You have your elite fights. You have your events, and um, you have your your boss fights and your your best sites. Um, one of the things that makes Slay the Spire tick is the die. And when people first look at this game, they'll be like, why do you why do you have a die in Slay the Spire? Um, the monsters in Slay the Spire, some of them have patterns they go through, but some of them do kind of random stuff. Uh, and... And since we're going to have up to four players, you can have quite a number of of monsters in front of the players. And how do you determine what all those monsters are doing, what their intent is? Um, and that's where the die comes in. You can be facing, we could be facing, you know, eight monsters. And a couple of them just do the same thing every turn, you know, two or three of them. But like, you know, let's say four of them they have an attack pattern that isn't predictable and the die with one roll of the die, all of their actions are determined. So let's say a jaw worm on, on a one and a two, uh, it's a six sided die on a one and a two. It's buffing on a three and a four. It's attacking you for three on a five and a six. It's attacking you for something less and it is blocking also. Um, but let's say your friend is also fighting a jawworm. Well, their jawworm has the actions offset. So 
while on a one and a two, it's buffing for you. On theirs, it's giving them a big attack. So the monsters, even if they're exactly the same, um, we print different versions of them, where the actions end up being different. And so, uh, but but they all act on the same die roll, or yeah, do they so, have their own die roll? No, just with okay. one die roll, all see, of the monster actions are determined, and it, it will give you you know a distribution like you know the watchers being attacked for a lot, the ironclad. You know, is facing mm. a draw worm that's about to buff. You know, the defects facing a cultist. You're facing a couple of louses, and they're doing different things. One of them's about to attack you. One of them's going to buff. Um, and so, all these things, all you have to do is roll the die once, and you know what everything is doing. It's very quick and easy. I like that. That's a very smart design and elegant design, which I always like quite a bit. Um, and I think you do not lose. Anything. I mean, you the the um, the initial idea probably is to to roll for for each monster. Yeah, no, that was um, never is, the which, idea. I, I yeah, knew I would. I, mean, I knew I'd yeah, hate but that. I mean, if, yeah, I, I can I can to I totally get it. But if if you as a let's say maybe a new game designer get get into that you and you get try to to create some kind of AI, um, I mean the the easiest way to think of it would be to um, to to um, If, if you think about dives, um, would be to say, okay, I roll a dive per uh, per monster to determine what they do. Um, but that's a typical situation that you, when you play it for the first time, um, you play test it, you somehow realize that something might be off because it's, uh, I don't know, it feels more like bookkeeping because you are you are more uh, rolling the dice and looking what kind of action happens instead of really making decisions where typically the the fun is located so um i really like that you um came up with the um it that way that uh, you only only roll the die once and then all of the monsters take their their actions and they're not the same actions but they are because they are alternate i really like that i think it's a great design Yeah, that, that, that's that's the the thing that's making Slay the Spire, Spire tick, and it's integrated in more than just the monsters. It's also integrated into the relics. So you have you have relics like the Happy Flower that will give you an energy on a five or a six, and and the Ink Bottle you will draw a card on a one or a two. Um, so. Uh, and then it, it goes even deeper. You have the gambling chip that lets you re-roll the die. So you might want to re-roll the die to avoid a big attack of a monster. You might want to roll the die so your friend's relic triggers. Um, and then you have a couple of other relics that manipulate it, like the abacus increases the die result by one. Uh, so as as the number of relics increase and as, as players... Um, progress through the spire at uh that one roll of the die is telling you a lot of things that happen at the beginning of every turn and and all the relics do their thing there's even a couple cards that trigger on 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 the die roll um like uh the defect has a card called chaos where which orb you summon is based on the die roll and you don't have to re-roll the die you you know The die, you roll it once, it sits there, you know all the relics that trigger, you know which cards will do what, and you know what all the monster intentions are. Very interesting. And um, how did you actually um, 
implement the uh, let's say marketplace or the way to um to add new cards to your deck so how do you do do that for multiple people at once if you can share that with us right now you just get card rewards from your own card reward deck just so it's just like the video game everyone has their own card reward deck okay. there's no separate marketplace everyone's just revealing three and picking one okay that sounds uh, sounds reasonable so not too much overhead there also and um yeah tell us a little bit more about um when people will be able to to get their hands on the game where so what's aiming, the time plan uh the, the timeline the real timeline is when the game is ready <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as, sure. as always um but the uh the current timeline that we're working with is um uh end of september to to kickstart cool so maybe one additional question to with regards to um to working with the with the IP IP here were there also some kind of i mean situations or so or um or issues when let's say the 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 IP holders would would like to to add something to the game that you didn't like or so or want to reduce or remove something some aspects of the game that uh, that you were a big fan of so were there some kind of um let's say situations that you had to solve in a different way because you were not um working on the game alone i mean you there are some kind of dependencies here with this with the with the ip holder so um tell us a little bit more about the yeah the the way of working with an ip compared to your first game where you where you didn't have an have an ip in the background yeah well this isn't just an ip this is an IP that's going to be fairly faithful to one of the, uh, you know, most successful, probably the most successful deck building video game of, of all time. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a groundbreaking game that a lot of people are passionate about and the developers are passionate about. So our disagreements are, are all about making the best game possible, which is a goal that we're very passionate about. So even, even our disagreements are, we want to disagree as much as we can, because when we do, we're circling in on what the best answer is. Um, uh, we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're saying exactly what we think will result in the best game. And it does result in what I would call, you know, very productive, um, resolutions. Um, uh, th things like how much to integrate the die, uh, was, was one of them, um, because it, you know, coming from Slay the Spire, it is something to get used to. It's like, how much should we lean in on this die? And, um, granularity has probably been one of our biggest challenges. Um, the basic strike and defend in, in the, in the board game are just one. But in the video mm -hmm. game, a lot of the times when you improve a card, it's by like three, like, you know, like, like a strike does does six damage and a pummel strike does nine. Or if you upgrade a strike, it does nine damage. Uh, whereas in the board game, because we're, 
were based around one, a lot of the game scales down to um, to comes about uh, a five to one compared to the video game. So one damage in the board game is five damage in the video game. A lot of okay. things don't translate when you're dealing with that kind of granularity. Um, a lot of cards that you can make more powerful by just a little bit, we can't do in the board game. So we have to find clever workarounds time and time again to make these cards feel right. Um, uh, and that has that's something we talk about a lot. Uh, there's kind of a running joke when we talk about the game where where we know the word granularity is going to come up at some point <laughs> in every conversation we have. <laughs> so it's um, it's kind of like, uh, you know, in Pee Wee's Playhouse where it's like you have the word of the day um, and everyone freaks out. Have you ever seen Pee Wee's Playhouse? No, nope, I didn't. Um, it, it's 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 a silly show, but in the beginning of every episode, they announce a word and uh when they say that word during that show, every all the cast freak out and you know they go bananas and they scream. Um, uh, granularity is our our freak out word. Um, we just know it's going to come, and it's like a joke every time it does. And it, almost every day, there's a granularity problem we have to solve. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe tell us a little bit about why you have the. Um the the granularity so why did why didn't you just use the um the factors of the um of the computer game you could have gone with uh, um the base um level of uh let's say an upgrade uh, increases the number of damage times three or so why did you change that for the physical game um the first prototype i made uh a strike dealt two damage instead of one. So I had a little more granularity to go from, you, know, you upgrade a strike, it goes from two to three. A lot of the cards you add to your deck would deal three damage. And already the HP for monsters was getting out of control. I didn't want to count that much. Um, I knew if I could make the granularity of going down as far as I could to one. If I could make that work, I knew that would be the best form of the game because it involves the least counting and the least math. And I just, I switched to one and I didn't look back and I'm just solving every problem that comes up because of that. So, so everyone has to do less math than in the end, you know, I'd, I'd rather have a more enjoyable game than a more accurate one. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you have you do you have a possibility to to upgrade cards? And um, if so, how you do it? How do you do it in a physical game? Uh, we are including upgrades, and um, we're not including that in the retail version. That's going to be more of a, a deluxe or expansion thing. But mm -hmm. um, you're you're just straight up replacing a card. You swap out. The, the unupgraded card for the upgraded version. Okay. Because that was something that I, or I know many, many game designers always 
um, try to solve somehow to how to upgrade cards and I mean also magic does it with, with cards that you can level where you have some I don't know maybe different uh, dice with or tokens on the cards to highlight that they are on a different a different level or so um, and um, yeah I was curious to to learn how you um, how you implement it in a in a game like Slay the Spire. We thought of different ways to do this, one involving, you know, sleeves um, and overlays and stickers. And, you know, we, we we tried to think of every possible method. And so that we're like, okay, before we print a copy of every card, let's make sure we absolutely have to do that <laughs> and that we don't like all the other ways of doing it. Um, and that's basically what happened. We didn't like all the other ways of doing it. And we didn't like forcing people to use a lot of sleeves. Um, yeah, so basically it is the way it is because we don't like all the other ways of doing it. Yeah, I mean, it must be difficult for you as well because uh, since you are the game designer and the publisher in one person, you have different hats to wear and um, you also have to look on production costs, for example, yeah, re uh, regarding the number of cards which will be in the game or so. Yes, the um, upgrades definitely is out of the price range of a you know a retail edition product. Okay, so do you already know how many cards will be in the base box, or is this uh, still something to be decided? The number is changing, and I would prefer not to say the number just so that you know sure people don't listen to this and get conf you know conflicting information. I, I can say it's currently over four hundred. Whoa, that's quite a bit. Yeah, it's a lot of cards. Yeah, I'm looking forward to <laughs> to that game experience. So, um, yeah, what is uh, when we when we look back at the at the publishing part of the game? So, what is something that you, uh, or in general, both of the, your games, maybe what is something that you um, that you learned on the on your on your uh, journey there when you when you had your first Kickstarter campaign or so, um, what is something that you would like to, or will be, will be doing different with, uh, with Slay the Spire this time? Wow. I'm making so many mistakes all the time. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, That's good. That's how we learn. <laughs> it's, uh, it's hard to say what, what the, what the best advice would be. Um, probably the best advice is don't launch until you're ready. No one, like, like I'm dealing with with you know thousands of Slay the Spire fans who I announced the game to too early. By the way, that's the most recent mistake I made. I announced <laughs> Slay the Spire too early. Um, now I know don't release until your prototype is pretty much done. Um, but uh, I mean, don't don't announce the like the launch date mm -hmm. until the prototype's almost done. Um, I would say. Um, Yeah, just just um, no no one's holding a gun to your head, making you release the game right now. If if you think you need an extra couple months to get the Kickstarter video right, if you think you your your ads don't look good and you're not you're not ready to roll out the marketing, just just don't. Um, yeah, like don't don't hold yourself to artificial timelines that in the end no one really cares about. Even if you announced it to thousands of people that you're going to launch your Kickstarter on, you know, August 7th or whatever it is, 
just uh, if you don't want to release it then and it's not ready, don't do it. Just get all your ducks in a row and make sure you're really ready. You'll know when you're ready. If you don't think you're ready, you're not ready. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, I don't know if you are. Um, that's a lot of a lot of work to be done um, for, for one person. So preparing a Kickstarter campaign, um, working um, on, on the game itself, um, uh, collaborating with... Um, with the um, IP holders and so on. So what kind of work as a publisher do you do yourself and where do you, do you get help from, uh, from others? Maybe, I don't know, team members or um, externals. Yeah. Um, I do too much for sure. <laughs> uh, I, I, I like when there's a change to a card, I'm the one going into InDesign and changing the numbers and exporting the cards and putting them into tabletop simulator. Um, I'm often the one tweaking the art. I don't create original art. That's where I draw the line, but kind of like everything else I'm doing. And it's, um, it's, you know, I work with the art assets. I get them ready to be in. I, I do graphic design. Uh, I'm trying to do less graphic design, trying to do less art. And, um, Eventually, I'd I'd like someone to help me uh, with some of these other tasks. But um, yeah, I I do too much, and it's not going to scale well as as contention games grow. So I am going to be looking for people to help me. But everyone starts out doing too much; it's unavoidable. If you want, if you want to, if you want things to be right, and you're a perfectionist like me, then which is a curse by the way don't be a perfectionist that's that's some other advice but if, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah you're you're gonna end up realizing that a lot of the art that you get needs to be tweaked a lot of the graphic design isn't going to be right um you're gonna you're gonna get things and they're gonna be wrong and you're gonna have to deal with how to get them where they need to be and if you don't have the skills to do it you'll always be at the mercy of other people what they can do for you and when they can do it. And um, that is, it's a blessing and a curse because you can't do everything, but if if things aren't where you want them and you need them to be done, what are you going to do? Um, sometimes you just got to pick up the pen and get this thing to where it needs to be. And you're not going to have the skills to do it at first and you'll keep on hacking at it. And one day you'll realize like, oh, you know, this piece of art is now where it needs to be or this uh, this graphic design. And yeah, um, now I'm kind of rambling, but it is kind of. <laughs> yeah, you must be you must be wearing many, many hats. I mean, uh, I can only imagine how, um, yeah, how many people are really waiting for the game and also updates of the game. So you also have to do a lot of um Uh, w communication work, advertising, uh, marketing in general. So, um, how how do you share infos about the game? Do you share them um, via newsletter, or do you have some other kind of other channels where you um, kind of um, keep the people informed, or is this something that you want to um, you wait with until, let's say, uh, Kickstarter is is going to join soon, uh, to start soon? Um, the, the standard thing to do is to, once you have your, your Kickstarter date nailed down is to start running ads, um, at most a few months before. And this is when, when things are like 
running and your ads look great. Um, a, a lot of people, okay. A lot of advice is to start your advertising early and to build a following. And there is some truth to that with small games. Absolutely. Start building your following early, your email list early, showing it to people early. Um, but when you're dealing with a big game that already has a following and you'll notice big studios do this too, they already have a newsletter that has tens of thousands of people. They don't need to do early marketing and start getting a few emails. Um, so they only show things when they're a few months out or less, sometimes, you know, six weeks out, the ads start and, and, you know, and then the, the videos start coming out from reviewers about the same time um, that they launch. So the advice is different if you're, if you're a small starting publisher versus a big one. If you're a small one, start getting your ads out. Uh, I shouldn't say start getting your ads out because you could spend a lot on advertising for things that aren't quite ready. Start showing the game. Start talking about it. Start trying to build a following early. And it's so easy to do on something like like Board Game Geek. And, um, and then if you're, if you're ready to go, your, your art assets are ready or, you know, and you're going to launch this thing in, in six weeks to three months, then you need to start getting, getting it out there and spending money on it. That sounds like a, a very interesting journey you are on. Um, so starting with your first, your first game that started uh, with a horrible prototype in the beginning um, and then um, ended up as a very good game, um, which is really loved by, by players. Um, they also pointed me into the direction, by the way, listeners of my podcast. Um, and um, yeah, and then working with a, with a, with a, with a big uh, computer, computer game hit like Slay the Spire um, as a next step must be, uh, must be super exciting for you. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to your, uh, to your Kickstarter campaign. Oh, uh, thank you. And thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So um, before, we, before we end the show, is there maybe um, one advice that you would like to give to, um, let's say, to aspiring game designers that are just starting out with their, um, with their first, first game and they, maybe they are in the, uh, at the situation that they have a, a very horrible prototype <laughs> that, they, that they just created and they don't know how to proceed. So um, what, would you, what would you tell, um, tell someone like that? Okay. Uh, if you're starting out... Um... Find people to criticize your game as frequently as you can. Show it to people, get criticism, change it. You need to, you need to learn to love criticism and um, don't be attached to ideas. Be, get attached to your game being the best it can be. If you have idea, you know, like people say, kill your darlings. I've heard that before. Um, Don't, don't even, your darling should be your game being in the best form it can be, not your latest idea. I think um, one of the reasons, you know, the, the, the get criticism is, is so important is not just because it, you, you change your game, but um, for the better, but because it gives you goals. And a lot of times I think um, creatives in any field have trouble with early 
is um, they don't feel enough urgency from one goal to the next. Like, why am I working on the game today? Well, you're working on it because you need to, you know, uh, make the changes that you got last week and prepare to show it to these other people this weekend. You know, um, it, it gives you it gives you small goals to look forward to and work on. And so you don't lose perspective getting in your own head and getting away from what's really making your game tick and what specifically you should be working on. Uh, and yeah, and, and get criticism as much as you can. And, and that kind of falls into my second piece of advice, which is that steel sharpens steel, get advice from people and, and, and try to talk to people about your game who can tell, tear your game apart. You'll get great advice from, and feedback from everybody, but, um, try, try to, try to interact with people who, who make you be better. Um, and who, or, or, or who are better than you at something, at some aspect of this. Um, yeah, surrounding, surrounding yourself with good people that can, that can tear into your game, give you feedback and help you figure out where it needs to go and different people, not, not just the same ones. I think there is a quote, I just forgot from whom it is, um, that says you're the sum of, uh, the five people you spend the most time with. And that was something that immediately came up to um, to me when you talked about um, yeah surrounding yourself with uh, with people that are giving you good advice. Yeah, uh, that that's that's an interesting statement. I'll have to think about that one. That might be. <laughs> I think I might agree with that. <laughs> okay, so um, where can people find you and um, yeah learn more about um, Slay the Spire once it uh, once it gets out? Um, Slay the Spire. I'm gonna announce the hell out of it when when it's ready you, you, you can find you can find me on facebook uh the, the contention games facebook group but i'm not really posting things on there because uh you know the prototype's still being worked on but um but you can sign up to our newsletter you know you'll definitely hear about it from the newsletter um you can also follow follow us on twitter although i'm i'm not as active on twitter as i should be and um board game geek i am all over that If you have a question about Imperium, uh, you can definitely find me there. And then once Slay the Spire, that page is up. You know, you can definitely ask me questions on the Slay the Spire board game geek page. Okay, perfect. Then I will link um, these pages and also your website on uh, in the show notes. Though, if uh, any one of you uh, wants to um, wants to reach out or wants to join the newsletter or learn more about Imperium or Slay the Spire, um, you will find all the necessary links in the show notes so gary um thank you so much for being a guest on the on the nerd lab podcast i really enjoyed talking to you and um, as mentioned i wish you all the very best for um for the future and your upcoming kickstarter campaign thank you so much for having me i had fun okay so until next week keep shooting for the moon and nerd like a boss goodbye everyone mm -hmm.